laws will have to be imposed and a world governing body will be created to enforce them. Welcome to Tinfoil Hat. We, we, we go deep, homeboy. Eric, open your mind. Drink from the fountain of knowledge. There's lizard people everywhere. That's some interdimensional shit. Aaron, this is only the beginning. Dude, you just blew my mind. Yeah. And welcome to another episode of Tin Foil Hat. Uh, you know who I am. You know what I'm here to do. Uh, join me, as always, is XG and the place to be. How are you, brother? Good, good. So, a uh, fun weekend. We Great crushed weekend. it in Arizona. People yeah. came out. Thank you guys very much. We really appreciate your support. You're making an old man feel loved, and I love you for that. Uh, we're going, I am going to be in Sunnydale at Rooster Teeth Feathers this whole weekend, Thursday through Sunday. Thursday is pimping in the parking lot. You come out. I have a weed sponsor. Uh, we're going to take care of you. Okay. Then, uh, the next two nights is stand up, and then Sunday night's going to be q and A. I'm going to answer all your questions, do some stand up crowd work. It's going to be amazing time all week. Please come out and, uh, I, I look forward to meeting everybody. I'm bringing two t-shirts and I'm super excited about that. Uh, then we have, oh, we have a couple big announcements. The next big announcement is there will be a live tinfoil hat at the comedy store next Tuesday, April 9th. Uh, it will be Eddie Bravo, myself, and Alex Jones will be joining us there. So, and, uh, XG will come. Yeah, we're going to throw the whole crew up there oh, and, shit. and we'll see how it goes. So if you guys wanted to see the three of us talking, now you're going to be able to see it. He's doing the show next, uh, next Monday, and then he's doing our, uh, our live show at the Comedy Store. So it's going to be uh, Eddie and I do, and Alex is going to try some stand-up. He's going to try some stand-up. We're all going to try some stand-up, and then we'll do a nice little Q&A at the end, and hopefully uh, it, the train won't go off the track. Fuck it. And then I'm the fo- and then the following week, Tim Foyle Hat is at the Nashville Comedy Festival, and that is April thirteenth, I believe. We're doing the eleven o'clock slot, and then the following week is the uh, no, the next day we're in uh, Alabama. We're at the the where are we at? It's the uh, Huntsville Improv in Alabama. It's myself, Eddie Bravo. We'll see who's with us. It's going to be a great time. So uh, two big shows coming up. I hope you guys can uh, join us. Uh, and then after that, oh, after the tinfoil hat, that night will be a comedy chaos brought to you by Absolute Abstract. Absolute Extract, it is the number one weed. Uh, they are the the Nike. They are the Reebok. Uh, I don't know who just got in trouble with the uh, FBI. Whatever one is not that. Uh, they are that. They are dominating it. They are a great business started by a couple guys, and they are they do, and they're sponsoring the live comedy chaos. And then, uh, yeah, so Joe Rogan's gonna be there, and that's all we have planned right now. But we're putting it together. The final announcement of the show will be tomorrow night, and that, my friend, is all of the business. Oh no, no, I'll do that one tomorrow. Anything else? That should be it. Yeah, dude, we nailed it. Look at us, young Christian warriors. All right, man. Uh, very, very excited to have our guest on here today. Uh, I just love this topic, and I'm super excited to have him on. He's a teacher, a scientist. You can hear him on podcasts all over the place, and he's a Freemason. Please welcome Randall Carlson. How are you, buddy? Oh, hold on, Randall. Hold on. Hold on. Ah, here we go. 
Here we go. One more time, buddy. Just give me... There we go. It's usually not this janky. How are you, Randall? Sorry about that. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Super excited for you. Um, I, I, wow, I didn't know you were a Freemason. That's amazing. Uh, Freemasons, I, know, I, I have a couple friends who are Freemasons. Like, do you think it's like, what, what is the Freemasons? Uh, it's a fraternal organization that goes back, um, depends on how you define it exactly, uh, but it goes back centuries. Uh, I think most of the scholarship now is leading to the conclusion that its pedigree goes back to the Middle Ages and the era of the great cathedral building. Although the modern Masonic Lodge in its present incarnation dates back to the early 1700s. But it clearly existed. There's there's considerable evidence that it existed within that interim between the uh, late Middle Ages and, say, the, the Renaissance times. Um, but it was pretty much... Uh, a very clandestine operation at that time because of the fact that the political and religious climate did not allow for those kind of organizations to exist. So they had to more or less stay underground until uh, Western civilization liberalized enough that they could sort of come come out and reveal themselves. And this is what happened, I believe it was 1717. Wow. Four, four lodges in the United Kingdom or in the British Isles, came together and consolidated and formed the Grand Lodge of England, which still exists today and which um, charters most of the Masonic Lodges around the world, uh, with the exception of the co-Masonic Lodges, which are chartered by the French Masonry, which uh, was at one time uh, part of the same body as the uh, Grand Lodge of England, but there was a schism that developed somewhere, I believe, in the late 1800s. I'm not up on the specifics of that history. Uh, I used to know it, but, you know, you don't think about stuff for 20 or 30 years and you forget the details. So rather than putting out some wrong dates or, or, or whatever, I would prefer to just say around that time. Um, but, yeah, so there are millions of Masons around the world. They're not as widespread as they used to be just because of the you know, changing cultural times, that uh, it seems like a lot of the uh, younger generation um, has bought into a lot of this conspiracy crap that's constantly <laughs> on the internet. What is that? What do, What do you think that is? Do you think there's they just they lump Freemasons in with the Illuminati? Is there what, well, what do you think? That people is? are looking for looking for oversimplified explanations for things. Uh-huh. And while there are certain real conspiracies in the world, Freemasonry is not one of them. Now, certainly there have been prominent individuals that have, have had major social, political, cultural, scientific, uh, economic influence, but they're doing that not as, a, as, as the body of Freemasons, you know, any more than a Southern Baptist who happens to become the CEO of a company has done so because the Southern Baptists are conspiring to put him into that position of power. I like to point out to people that, um, you know, of all the American presidents, at least four, about 14 of them, I think is pretty much the accepted number, uh, were actually Freemasons. You know, it's controversial whether Thomas Jefferson was or not. Um, there's no evidence of him ever having been initiated into a lodge or having attended a lodge meeting, but a lot of his writings 
have some peculiar wording and phraseology and so on that is is uh, very typical of the Freemasonry. But um, yeah, so uh, you know, it, it's just part of this. Uh, you know, it, it just because it's the fact that it's been secret uh, of necessity in order to survive. But uh, I also point out that you know of the fact that there were fourteen presidents uh, that were Freemasons. There were 23 presidents, Sam, that were Episcopalians. So clearly, and that's a fact, clearly it's the Episcopalians that are the puppet masters, not the Freemasons. Nobody's talking about them, so that, now I know it's true. If they don't know yeah, you, the, that means you know something. That's my opinion. What is it, Picasterian? Yeah, Picasterian. I don't even know. That. I don't even know. What are they? The that, Episcopalians. That's oh, the yeah. fish? Yeah, I what was my mom? I think she was a prostitute. They're not. They're a, a denomination of Christianity. Yeah. Typical, you know, you've got your Presbyterians, you've got your Lutherans, you've got your Methodists, your Baptists, you've got your Episcopalians. Those Episcopalians, I never trust them. I always, every time I go in this into a place, I'm like, is there a Episcopalian here, dude? Because I know they're shady. Um, why don't you talk to? I appreciate you answering that. I appreciate you answering that. I was doing an Instagram thing, and this guy from another podcast pop. Bo- podcast popped on and he was like yeah i'm a freemason and everybody kind of flipped out on the the instagram and when pat miltich is on they get kind of weird about that too i i just it's interesting because let me let, let me let me give you just a, a very short summary freemasonry like i said it, it traces back to the to the lodges of medieval builders and this was a group that however they came upon their knowledge at the time, had very sophisticated knowledge of geometry, of engineering, of astronomy, of symbology, and they were caretakers, if you will, or custodians of this knowledge, and it was all incorporated into the building of these incredible Gothic cathedrals. So if anybody has visited these Gothic cathedrals and looked at the extraordinary masonry work, that, that has gone into these, not only the masonry work, but the the, the, the stained glass windows are, are totally amazing to, to see. Um, what's not there was the carpentry work that had to be done um, in order to create the formwork over which the masonry was laid up. And it's all based upon very sophisticated geometry and very sophisticated engineering principles that were unprecedented for their time, because prior to that, most architecture simply use compressive forces. You have a big old fat column that holds up a, a, a horizontal member, a beam, or a lintel. Yeah. The, the structural forces are extremely simple. In a Gothic cathedral, the, tensile, the, the forces at work are mostly tensile forces. Like, the difference is a compressive force, uh, the compression is squeezing, shortening the fibers, tension elongates the fibers you know when you when you're playing any stringed instrument you have to put those strings under tension in order for them to vibrate yeah what we see going on in those gothic cathedrals is literally vibrational physics now somebody had that knowledge when the cultural and political climate changed in the late 1200s and early 1300s for a number of reasons, not least of which was global cooling, which brought on agricultural collapse, which brought on famine, which brought on mass mortality, which then wiped out half the labor force that was involved in building these cathedrals. At that time, you had the the enlightened era of 
the high Gothic Middle Ages replaced with superstition and fear, uh, widespread mortality, and the climate became very antithetical to the perpetuation of the Masonic tradition. So it had to, in order to survive, go underground. And what it did was it encoded all of its information and knowledge and wisdom and understanding of these various aforementioned principles into a type of symbology, into the ritual, into the into the symbols that go into the lodge working, into the Masonic system, and that is what is still preserved today. And Freemasons themselves are not the least bit interested as a fraternity in political power. Now, does that mean that there have been that there haven't been individuals that have coveted power or or, or prosperity or whatever that have been part of Masonic uh, Masonic um, Brotherhood? Yeah, support just like there's with any with any group, you know, so, but it's just simple-minded and very easy. It's a very, it's an intellectual cop-out to then try to come up with one single, you know, organization or entity that is now responsible for, you know, everything that's going on, uh, that's pulling this, the, the master puppeteers pulling the strings and whether, you know, make the case for that, but you can't make the case that it's Freemasons, right? I mean, these days, once upon a time, you know, half a century to a century ago, yes, there were more prominent Masons in positions of influence just because of the way things were back then. You know, you know, right when I was born, right, no. almost nobody had televisions, right? So when I was, what, three years old, four years old, I have vague memories of my dad bringing the first television. Right? <laughs> so, so I'm like of the first television generation growing up watching television. Okay, my dad's generation, my grandfather's generation. There was no television. There was no internet. There was no Facebook. There was none of that, right? What did you do? Well, you joined fraternal organizations. That was, and that was a, a big, much bigger part of our society back in the early 20th century than at the turn of the century, the late 20th century, and now. See, <clears throat> oh, there's just too many distractions, and you know these these, these quaint, archaic rituals that are handed down in Freemasonry. People can't make the connection between this exalted history, centuries of history, really more like millennium of history that lies behind it, and, and, and what's actually going on today. You know, hey, you go to some Masonic fish fry, you're not going to get a sense that, hey, yes, this is descended from something extremely profound, very spiritual and very profound that once existed and had a tremendous influence for the good on society, because it is Freemasonry where you first begin to find um, the idea that the individual is worthy. Is that the individual, in, in, in to, to understand the worth of the individual was the beginning of the end of slavery, of subservience, of you know, of indentured servitude, all of those kind of things, those worldviews that used to exist historically, in which the individual had no value whatsoever. I love this. So, I love that. That's amazing. That's amazing. Very interesting. I always, you know, man, I, I have to ask the question because I, I find it just amazing how like, yeah, I mean, I don't know a lot about the Freemasons. Do you? Is I mean, it, like, is I, the only Freemason you've like, No, met? I know a couple, a couple, but I've never really looked into it. You know, it's very interesting. It's very interesting. Um, it, it would be worth looking into because let me put it this way. There is a treasure trove there. And in fact, I'll even go, go I'll, 
go a little further. Most Masons today do not even understand what they're sitting on. They don't understand that they are custodians of this incredibly rich and profound heritage that has come down to us through centuries. That, that gives us a completely different insight into into our own history. That there was things going on. There were there, there were processes in unfolding that just don't make sense within the conventional models of history. And one of those, you know, I, I'm sure if you you know Joe Rogan, you know Graham and Hancock and I have been on there yes. multiple times. Um, you know Graham coming out this month with uh, book America before. This is going to be a game changer because it it it, it expands upon and confirms everything he's already written about ancient cultures, ancient civilizations. I love this. I love catastrophes that. and love the role it. between why those civilizations have become lost to history and the reality of global catastrophes. Um, yeah, he gets into all of that. And see, Sam, we are standing on the threshold of a sweeping, dramatic paradigm change about the understanding of, of this world that we inhabit and, and our own history on this planet. And there's a lot of very conservative, very entrenched ideologies and, and factions are not fine with that. They're not, it, because they have built their, their power structures upon the prevailing models of the world, I the prevailing it. models of yeah. reality and yeah. history. So if you start challenging those, what is happening then is it's beginning to undermine the, the, the support upon which they have built their power structures, you see. So there's a lot of resistance. It comes politically, it's scientific. Um, it's economic, for sure, absolutely. There are vested money interests, there are vested political interests, there are vested scientific interests that don't... It's it's not to their advantage that this paradigm goes through this revolutionary shift, that it is going to go through no matter what they do. Because the knowledge is now too widespread, it's too deep, it's too abundant, it's too ubiquitous, uh, it's overwhelming. And... You know, Graham's new book is, what, 500-some pages, dense pages uh, of documentation. You know, so you can, you know, you can dismiss it, but you can't refute it. You know, because he's got hundreds and hundreds of footnotes, see? So it's not like, oh, he's just figuring this up out of some, yeah. you know, this is 40 years of research for him. It's 40 I'm years a- of research for me, 40 years of research, 50 years for those of us who have been engaged in this for as long as we have. I agree, man. I think this is a wonderful time. I mean, it's like Jason Lou said when he was on the show. It's like the internet has helped spread knowledge. We've gotten the knowledge of the uh, of the elites, and uh, that's never happened before. We've seen the controlling of books, Bibles, whatever book you want, burning of books. That was the first censorship. We have the censorship from the left right now. Uh, back in the day, it was censorship of the right, religion, all that stuff. If you had a different style of life, a different lifestyle, you were like punish put to death all that crazy stuff and just i'm just learning that there's just a long con going on just i mean what is up is down what is what is right is left i don't know anymore because i'm learning so much and just like the whole belief system and what we're told from the history i'm starting to think is all bullshit and you're right man we're on an amazing time right now where just the truth is out there and i feel bad for people who don't try to pursue it. I just think like doing this show and, you know, we, 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 we look into the stories that haven't been told, you know, that news is that isn't reported, you know, um, mm-hmm. 
That's yeah. what I find to be interesting. And I, I, you know, we just did a we did a show on the Great Flood, but or the uh, the this catastrophe that happened. But real quick before that, tell us about Bad Comet Conf- the Bad Comet Conference in Colorado on May seventeenth through the twenty second. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the, the Darren and 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 Dear Graham, the the fellows that do the Great America podcast, have. I guess what, for three or four years now, they've kind of annually done a get-together for, for their fans and patrons and so on. And I've done their show, what, three or four times now? And, you know, I, I've gone and hung out with them. We've traveled together. We've explored together up in the Canadian Rockies and, you know, had a lot of fun together. And so this year they decided to up, upgrade the whole uh, get-together thing. They asked me if there was any areas that I was interested in or would suggest, and of course I had multiple places that I could have suggested, but an area I've been looking into, you know, in the Southwest is around the Four Corners region, the Choctawan culture, um, which is something Graham Hancock is writing about in in his new book. Um, So I suggested the area of Southwestern Colorado. Um, So they have organized a a retreat, and it's going to be um, three groups, and I'm, I'm not sure people would have to go to the, the Bad Comet website that was put up um, for organizing this. Um, and yeah, yeah, just go basically go to the website, um, and then you find out whatever you need to know. Um, it's going to be, you know, we've got lectures planned, we've got field trips planned. Um, this the sounds awesome. Grand America yeah, guys are the, great. This is amazing. Yeah, they've, they've, yeah, they've rented a, a lodge building um, up there no- north of the Ghost of Springs. So we're looking into what kind of, we're still organizing, what kind of activities and exactly where we're going to go. But some of the areas, places we're going to go for sure are really awesome. Chimney Rock, for example, is one of the, is the most northern, northernmost outlier of the Chacoan culture, that the mysterious lost Chacoan culture that once inhabited all of the San Juan Basin of New Mexico reached up into Colorado, Utah, and Arizona, and left behind this remnant of their of this infra this vast infrastructure in the desert. And we will be visiting some of those sites. Uh, we will also be looking at some of the geological wonders of the area and how the geology uh, gave its shape to the culture that formed there and how geological or climatological forces may have been responsible for the sudden disappearance of the Chacoan culture. That's so interesting. And is that the name? Is that why you named it this, the Bad Comet? Uh, I didn't com- name it. Uh, that, I, I probably would have called it the Good Comet. But um, uh, I guess Alan Neal, I don't know if it was, maybe it was one of the Grimerica boys or Alan Neal who has been organizing it. I, it was probably him, but yeah, so uh, fans, look, if you were around when the purported comet struck the Earth between 12,813,000 years ago, yeah, it would have been a bad comet. Yeah, of, yeah, I, it wiped out. It would, it would have been no, no fun at all. So interesting. So what is the, what is the, what caused the Younger Dryas period? Uh, the Younger Dryas. Okay, yeah. well, the Younger Dryas. Well, hold on, hold on. I, I jumped, I jumped a little quick. So basically, the, the, they, brought, they brought the bad comet because you, 
you believe there's proof, and we're going to talk about today, that uh, a comet hit Earth about 13 to, uh, 12 to 13 years ago, and it wiped out everything. And that's kind of what we're talking about here. So, uh, sorry, I didn't set that up better. But the uh, what is the Younger Dryas period? Sorry about that. Okay, the Younger Dryas is a climate change event that was actually identified, I guess, first, gosh, going back to the 60s or 70s. Um, it's named after a particular type of wildflower called the um, uh, Dryas octopetala, which is a flower that only only grows in um, very cold environments, right? And it was prevalent during the Deep Ice Age in Europe back 15 to 20 to 30,000 years ago. Um, and then around between 14 and 15,000 years ago, it disappeared, right? Because the climate started warming. It's The climate actually started a gentle warming out of the Great Ice Age somewhere between 14 and 15,000 years ago. At that point, the glaciers began to shrink back. As they melted, that the meltwater poured back into the ocean, so the oceans began to rise from their lower state, which is about 400 feet lower than the present kingdom, right? Oh, yeah. So for a couple of thousand years, the ice was shrinking back and lost maybe 15% of its mass by then. Um, and this is when the so-called ice-free corridor may have opened up between the two great ice sheets that covered North America, the bigger of the two, called the Laurentide Ice Sheet, was centered over Hudson Bay. And it reached to the Atlantic Ocean. It came down in, as far as Ohio in the eastern United States, and it reached to the Arctic Circle on its northern perimeter. And then as it grew, it extended across the central prairies of Canada. Now, roughly at the same time, you had another ice mass forming over the Canadian Rockies of British Columbia. So somewhere between around twenty and 25,000 years ago, these two ice masses were growing and, and increasing in size. At one point, apparently, they coalesced. They joined together uh, right around where the town of Calgary is right now, right, in fact, right around where, where, where um, the Grimerica boys live, would have been in that place where the two ice met. Wow. Okay, so now you've got one... A huge ice mass reaching from the Pacific Ocean on the west of North America to the Atlantic Ocean on the east of North America over its thickest, which was the area around uh, Ontario, uh, Quebec, uh, Hudson Bay. It, it was at least a mile and a half thick. In some places, it may have been two miles, which is really almost inconceivable. One of the mysteries here is how that ice mass was able to accumulate to such an extraordinary size as quickly as it did. Because apparently it reached, went from, see, due to radiocarbon dating, the old models of the ice age have to be um, basically thrown out because radiocarbon dating has shown that there was forests growing in Canada between thirty five and 45,000 years ago where it was previously assumed was buried under ice, right? So... The problem with this get, getting those radiocarbon dates showing that there was very little ice over Canada, say 35,000 years ago, 30,000 years ago, is that the time frame now that you have to accumulate six to seven million cubic miles of ice is just 
ridiculously short. Now, on the turnaround, on the other hand, getting rid of the ice was even shorter. But back to your question, the Younger Dryas, kind of went on a loop there, but the Younger Dryas is this climate event that that huh. suddenly interrupted this 2000 period, 2000 period of And what happened was the gentle warming was almost due to the changing geometric relationship between the Earth and the Sun, right? Without going into the details of that, there are three factors that affect how much solar radiation reaches the surface of the Earth because of changing uh, orbital geometry of the Earth around the Sun and the changing angular tilt of the Earth's axis. Due to those factors... There is a gradual cooling, a gradual warming, back and forth. They're called Milankovitch cycles, right? Mo- so <laughs> 13 to 15,000 years ago, the Milankovitch cycle was one of warming. So the ice sheets began to shrink. The Cordilleran over the uh, over British Columbia, Cordilleran ice sheet shrunk back. The Laurentide ice sheet, which was the bigger of the two, it shrank back. So that's when this ice-free corridor opened up. Well, then here's what happened. At around 14,600 years ago, at, at according to the most recent dating, and, I, and I'm not convinced that this dating is correct for a number of reasons, which probably is beyond the scope of this conversation. <laughs> there was a massive meltwater pulse into the global oceans, right? And that was associated with this shrinking of the ice. This, they call, it's called meltwater pulse 1A, right? So now, here comes... 12,900 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Now, this warming has been going on, and then all of a sudden, within a matter of a few years or even a few months or even a few weeks, the climate suddenly shifts. 2,000-some years of this gradual warming are a rate in a matter of literally almost moments. You know, a couple of years, maybe max. The, pli- the climate plunges back into the full glacial cold of the late glacial maximum, and it lasted for 1,300 years. During that 1,300 years, the glaciers actually began to grow again. At the end of that 1,300 years, which dates to about 11,600 years ago, there was another massive meltwater spike into the global oceans. The first one seemed to it was almost as if the planet was trying to shake off the ice age, but it didn't succeed. Then it, now there's evidence emerging that around 12,900 years ago, there was a massive meltwater event as well. Another and one. Another one. Another one. So there may have actually been three pulses of melting. The final pulse of melting at 11,600 years ago is what ended the Younger Dryas and inaugurated the present geological epoch in which we are now in, the Holocene, which is characterized by being interglacial, between glacial periods, right? Yeah. So we're in a period now where the, the amount of glacial ice on the Earth is less than half, maybe even only a third of what it was during the late glacial maximum. So... Back to the Younger Dryas. The Younger Dryas right. was actually an older Dryas, and this the older Dryas goes back to the period right after that fourteen thousand six hundred meltwater event. Okay, so now you got the Younger Dryas, and like I said, it's named after this polar wildflower 
that had been growing in Europe during the full depth of glacial cold, then it disappeared for 2,000 years during that warming. And then right in the wake, right in the aftermath of the Younger Dryas Great Freeze, if you will, it came back again. See? So the driest flower, the driest octopatella, it disappeared. It was there. It disappeared, and then it came back again, right? And that was the first indication that something really, really extreme had happened. So now all kinds of evidence has accrued since then to to demonstrate that, yeah, it almost appears as if the planet got its ass kicked about three times, and it took three ass kickings to get the planet out of the ice age, finally. What's interesting here, too, is that that date of 11,600 years ago was the date that was named by, the, you know, the greatest metaphysician of the Western civilization, Plato, back 2,300 years ago in his, um, in his two dialogues on Atlantis, where he oh basically God. named... Because, so, see, in his dialogue... He talks about the historically known exile of the lawgiver poet Solon from Athens into Egypt, right? Which occurred about 600 BC, so about 2,600 years ago, right? Yeah. So now Plato describes how Solon, in his 10 year exile in Egypt, goes there and learns the story of Atlantis from the Egyptian priesthood, which were carrying on the traditions of that. And according to what Solon then carried back to uh, Athens and then gave to the succession of Tropidus and Critias the Elder and Critias the Younger, and then finally to Socrates and then to Plato, was that this final event that sank Atlantis between the uh, sank Atlantis between the ocean uh, under the oceans <clears throat> happened nine thousand years before. Solon's exile to Egypt, which happened 2,600 years ago, so you can do the math. That's 11,600 years. So it's oh my God. perhaps just a coincidence that Plato named the date that is now exactly the date that geologists and climatologists say this is the end of the previous world age and the beginning of the modern world age, which in geological terms is called the Holocene. And are we in a, like, in terms of, um, what is it, the age of Aquarius right now, too? Isn't that something that, like, this is what the What that time? means is, is that in the archaic models of global change, they were, you know, they, the way these were defined was through astronomical observations, as, as we still do. You know, we define a day according to a rotation of the Earth on its axis. We define a year yeah? based on the revolution of the Earth around the sun, right? Right. Well... In the archaic models, there are grander cycles at play here. Um, we get this from, you know, the Greeks talked about four world ages. The Mayans talked about four world ages. The Vedas talked about world ages. Uh, the, 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 the Persians used had concepts of, of a great year or world ages. And what's interesting is in that particular model, one processional cycle is the one that is most frequently associated with the concept of a world age. What is one processional cycle? Well, you know, the Earth's axis is not vertical relative to its orbital plane. It's tilted 23.5 degrees out of vertical. But that tilt is not constant. It's bobbing up and down, plus it's weaving around in the manner of a top. 
as the Earth's axis weaves around, the Earth's equator is following it, see? So the Earth's equator, the equatorial plane of the Earth, does not lie in the plane of its orbit. These two are at an angle of each other of 23.5 degrees. But because the Earth's axis is swinging around uh, and making a great circle in the sky, that circle is basically um, given the, uh, a, a period of about 26,000 years. Uh, or 50 arc seconds per year, which is a very small increment, a very small increment. If you think of a circle, it's divided into 360 hold on, degrees. Hold on. Uh, okay. <laughs> this Are is, you following this? I'm trying my hardest. You just asked me to do math. Um, so say that again one more time about the... About, think about this, Sam. 26,000 years is a full cycle of the Earth's precessional motion on its axis. Right, and during this twenty-six thousand years, it'll go through a succession of changing pole stars. So, for example, halfway through the cycle, thirteen thousand years ago, the north pole of the Earth wasn't pointing to Polaris, our current north star. It was pointing to Vega, which was then the north star. So, if you go halfway through the cycle, you get twelve thousand nine hundred years ago. Coincidentally, then, okay. So, so here, let me get back to this because of the. Did the Earth's uh, equator is changing relative to its orbital plane. The equinoxes and the solstices, which were so important to the ancient philosophers and builders and astronomers, those points are not fixed in space. They're moving, see? So you know we just had spring equinox. Spring yeah. equinox, yeah. day and night were at the same duration. For, for one there moment, and if you were in the right spot on Earth, day and night would have been precisely the same uh Duration, right? Because yeah. the, because uh, 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 one full solar solar cycle of the uh, uh, or one full turning of the Earth on its axis takes eighty six thousand four hundred seconds. Half of that is forty three thousand two hundred seconds, right? So this moment of equinox was always important to ancient peoples all over the world because they believed that at that point where light and dark were balanced. That's when the little the crack between the domains, between the worlds, between the dimensions would open up, and the shamans could take their journeys, and, and initiations could take place, and so on. Now, whether you accept that as literal or not, it doesn't matter, because that was the belief of the archaic cultures, right? Now, you asked about the age of Aquarius. So, the vernal equinox is shifting through the signs of the Zodiac. There are 12 signs of the Zodiac, right? Right. Aries, Taurus, Gemini, they go around through the sequence. There's 12 of them. If you look at the motion of the planets, the sun, and the moon, apparent motion or real motion through the signs of the Zodiac, they're moving west to east. But the pre-session, called pre because it's not pro, it's moving opposite to the direction of everything else. It's moving from east to west. But it's moving very slowly. It moves one degree every 72 years. So then it takes 72 years times 360 degrees to make a full cycle. So if you do the math, um, 72 years times 360 degrees is 25,920 years. I knew that. Okay. <laughs> right. Okay. So now you go back halfway through the cycle, you're at 12,960. Right At that point, the vernal equinox stood on the cusp of the constellation of Leo the Lion. It now is on the, between the cusp of Pisces and Aquarius. 
the vernal equinox will not actually enter the modern configuration of the Aquarian constellation for another three or four hundred years, right? So there's no specific point at which you can say, oh, now the Aquarian age begins or now the Piscean age begins. Oh, I got what you're you saying. Use, okay. okay. Yeah, you can only basically narrow it down to within a few centuries. But now get this, Sam. If we take that <laughs> Dude, one that was aspect, the smartest explanation to say, ah, uh, I ain't into that stuff, right? You know? All the all the uh, all the math and shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, that you're not into like what are women are always into all the astrological shit, right? They're all in oh. what's your sign. That was the smartest way ever to say mm, that's probably Bullshit. not right. <laughs> that was amazing. Yeah, it, yeah. Well, there was once an exalted science of astrology that has been totally watered down, bastardized, and popularized. It has very little to do with what astrology once was. Because you can actually establish that there is, I mean, hey, there is no doubt whatsoever that the cosmos is having all kinds of influences on the planet as a whole. That it has, you know, from the solar system to the galactic system and beyond. And again, that's going to be way beyond uh, the scope of what we have time to talk about today. At some point, maybe we can do a follow-up conversation. We can get into that because I've been pointing out for years now that if we are going to talk about ecology, if we're going to talk about and understand the, the, the biosphere, if we're going to understand the, the evolving ecologies of this planet, it has to be in the context of a much larger perspective, a cosmic perspective, what I would call a cosmic ecology. Um, because now we're realizing, yes, comets and asteroids and cosmic dust and the sun and perhaps galactic core explosions and nearby supernovas, all of these things are affecting the solar system, they're affecting the Earth. But now get this, Tim, I wanted to make one final point about this processional cycle. Please do. If we, if, if we go back half that cycle ago, right, when the pole star was Vega and we get to 12,900 years ago, Right, we're within one century of the Younger Dryas event. So we're close. That's why. And we're, I mean, so we could say that the Younger Dryas event falls right on that cusp of Virgo Leo of twelve thousand nine hundred and sixty years ago. Oh, March it almost precisely. Now I gave a lecture. Oh gosh, nineteen ninety-five. I think it was at Warren Wilson College in in uh, North Carolina. By that point, I had concluded that the most likely explanation for the catastrophes at the end of the last ice age were cosmic impacts, right? And I had concluded, I had come to a date not from modern dating methods, not from uranium thorium, not from radiocarbon, not from um, any of the other dating proxies that they used, but by studying ancient symbolism. That kept pointing to the date 12,900, 12,900, 12,900, over and over again. And then 2007, the dates get refined, and it's down to 12,900 years ago that the uh, Younger Dryas. And now, since 2007, we know that there are fingerprints all over the planet of some kind of a cosmic event. The most likely explanation being a comet impact or a series of impact impacts. I, I personally lean towards a series of impacts, but I'm also uh, in agreement for shock that the sun undoubtedly 
had a role to play in all of this. Really? So yeah. do you believe in Anunnaki? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I, yes, I believe in Anunnaki just like I believe in Anatazi, just, just as I believe in Nunahai, just as I believe in the Tuatha de Nanan. There are these, 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 what would you call them? They were the, I don't know what you would call them, the watchers. They were the, the interventionists that get blamed for being the purveyors of astronomy and geology and agriculture all over the ancient world. Culture after culture after culture, whether it's the Celts or the Egyptians or the Native Americans, um, you have the same idea that there was this group of outsiders that came in and influenced the, the Native peoples. Yes. And as a result, uh, now I'm not going to go and say that they were aliens. I'm not going there. Um, I'm open, you know, obviously the UFO thing is a mystery, although having looked at it in considerable depth, you know, decades ago, I came to the conclusion that uh, there were several explanations for it, um, that, that the phenomena, number one, was there is a deliberate uh, obfuscation of it on the part of our own government because they've been uh, testing high-performance aircraft for decades, and you know, many, of these, uh, many of these aircraft don't look like normal aircraft, and so they are identified when seen by the normal populace, and they are perfectly willing. And I've had this from some, actually, from inside sources that, yes, they're perfectly willing to let the general public believe that it's visitors from outer space. On the other hand, you also have, you have a visible-type phenomena that can be induced in people's perceptions by tectonic forces and the interplay between astronomical and tectonic forces. This is another subject that would be probably too much to get into, but at least oh, directly my. into discussion of the Holy Randall, Grail. Randall, Randall, hold on, hold on, Randall. <laughs> I yeah. have to ask you something. Sure. Are there lizard people, man? Can you scientifically <laughs> prove if there's lizard people, man? I mean, you say, I mean, like watchers and all that stuff. I mean, like, it's interesting, right? Maybe. Well, I don't put much stock in lizard people other than the fact that all of us still have the reptilian brains. So on some level, we're all still lizard people. And it's unfortunate that those whose reptilian brains seem to dominate their, their activities are the ones that seem to get into politics. But that's another discussion. Sounds like you're uh, open-minded to it, dude. I think you're open-minded to My first reaction to listen to people would be, I probably don't need to go there. I don't think that yes! I haven't seen anything <laughs> That's not a no, that dude. would require lizard people no. as an explanation. That is awesome. Man, you, you You're stoked, say, Sam. Yeah, yeah, I, you dude, didn't expect that. I'm all about the eagle and the, ser and the serpent, brother. Um, wow. That was, man, that's all amazing. So... So this astro, this comet or asteroid hits the planet, a couple of them, knocks everything out, and it's just chaos, right? It's just, boom, it's chaos. So it was getting cold, then something happens, and then it gets warm, and then it gets cold again. Is that what I... Is it? Yeah, it was, it was getting warm, then it, it was getting gently warming, and then you had a sudden freeze. The sudden freeze lasted 1,300 years. Then you had a sudden warming... Actually, no, back up, back up. Back you up. You had beep, a beep. gradual warming.
Then at the end of the 2,000 years of gradual warming, you had a catastrophic warming immediately followed by catastrophic freezing. The freezing lasted 1,300 years. That was followed by another catastrophic warming. Then over the next two to thousand years, two to three thousand years, planet Earth adjusted to this new set of parameters, these interglacial parameters. Sea level, which had risen in pulses, now began to slow down and has actually been gradually slowing down, but still rising throughout the entire Holocene for the most part, interrupted by the little ice age that came on between say the fourteen hundreds and the eighteen hundreds. Wow. And then with the with the warming at the end of the Little Ice Age in the mid nineteenth century, the sea level began rising at six to eight inches uh, per year. I mean per century, which is about what it's supposed to be. So the so the Earth goes up, the Earth goes down, the temperatures go up, the temperatures go down. I mean, but you're saying this wasn't natural, and that the maybe these asteroids caused that. Is that what I'm starting to believe? Well, I, I think that we could be looking at a number of things here. Like, again, getting back to this this concept that I introduced, the cosmic ecology, right? Because we know that there's, for example, we know that Earth has been pummeled by things from space far more frequently than anybody had imagined, you know, a generation or two ago, right? We know that. We know that from looking out into space and seeing that there's stuff flying back and forth out there way more frequently than anybody was imagining, right, a generation or two ago. The, the near-Earth space is filled with debris, right? Right. Now, on the other hand, you've got those astronomers looking out, then you've got geologists looking down, and they're discovering that Earth has hundreds of stars, impact stars, craters, astral beams, these sites where things from space have impacted Earth and undoubtedly cause havoc of all kinds, right? There's Sounds like my soul. Go on. Sounds like what? Sounds like my soul. <laughs> Your soul. Okay, well, maybe that explains partially why your soul is in that condition. <laughs> it's been through a lot, man, but we came out smiling. So go on. I'm only kidding. Tell me oh. about it. Yes, I know. Yes, the hard knocks of life. But so, um, yes, you've got all of these forces. You've got impact. Then you've got now mounting evidence that the sun is a, is a considerably more variable star than has been previously assumed. Right? Coronal mass ejections, solar proton events, these things have undoubtedly affected Earth. It's something else, too. What? Here, here's the scenario. I'll, I'll come back to what the something else in a second. Here's the scenario <laughs> that I think makes the most sense. Yeah. And, it, and it, it conforms with a lot of empirical data and a lot of theoretical data that would be supportive of this. Somewhere around 25 to 30,000 years ago, a giant comet becomes it's, it's dislodged from its deep space reservoir, presumably the, the hypothetical Kuiper disk, which is almost certainly more than hypothetical at this point. It's a reservoir of billions of comets that exists outside the orbit of Neptune, um, right? In a quasi-stable state, right? Meaning that as long as they're not perturbed, they continue in this long, slow orbit around the sun that might take a million years, right? Because you've got this big disk of comet, comet debris, cosmic debris, outside the orbit of Neptune, and it's slowly orbiting the sun. Now, every so often, something disrupts that disk. And when it does that, comets 
will begin moving in towards the sun. Once we get inside the orbit of Neptune, now a capture scenario becomes possible, whereby the outer big planets uh, coming in from Neptune to Uranus to Saturn to Jupiter now begin a sort of a bucket brigade phenomena. They begin handing these comets off to each other. Jupiter set them up for one of two uh, uh, scenarios. Either they get thrown out of the inner solar system or they get thrown in towards the sun. When they do that, they see up to this time they've been in deep freeze. You know, they've been in this hibernation state. Once they come into the inner solar system, they become activated. They begin to devolatilize. They begin to undergo this evolutionary, this cometary evolution, which, uh, first of all, will cause them to one large nucleus to break into multiple small nuclei, very much as we witnessed back in 1994 with the breakup of Shoemaker-Levy 9 from a single nucleus into 21 smaller nuclei and the subsequent impact of those nuclei into the sun, right? What? So now you get a big comet comes into the inner solar system, begins to break up. It, it spawns this, the, the, uh, this these, uh, a new generation of comets. Those comets are circling the sun. Now what happens to them? Okay, they can, they can hit planets, which then, of course, is, is the end of their life. They can continue to disintegrate if they form a meteor stream. That meteor stream, over time, will continue to disintegrate and essentially uh, create a, a stream of cosmic dust. The other thing that happens to a lot of them is they, they're sucked into the sun. They fall into the sun. And here's what we know about this. Since SOHO and these other solar satellites have been up there for the last 20, 20 years or so, looking at the sun, we've discovered that there's a huge number of these sun-grazing comets that ultimately are swallowed up by the sun. But when they fall into the sun, you know, the sun's gravity field is so intense, these comet nuclei are, are accelerating into the sun, they might attain velocities like 1,000 to 2,000 miles per second. When they plunge into the chromosphere of the sun, what happens then is there's a great plasma storm. That, that emanates from the point where that cosmic, that, that comet entered the sun, right? That plasma storm can then eject in the form of a coronal mass ejection. Now, the comets that have been witnessed so far are small comets, a few miles in diameter, yet they're having outsized consequences. Now, here's the scenario that I'm working on and developing, and, and if I'm putting out merely as a hypothesis at this point, is that 25,000 30,000 years ago, you had a giant comet enter the inner solar system. Something on a galactic level or a stellar level perturbed the Kuiper disk that sent this uh, cascading volley of comets to the inner solar system. One particular comet then goes in, gets locked into a, a Jupiter-Sun orbit, begins to undergo a hierarchy of disintegrations. Earth encounters the byproducts of that disintegration on multiple occasions possibly including sometimes just accretion of large volumes of cosmic dust, which would have the effect of increasing the opacity of the atmosphere, reflecting sun back <laughs> out into space, and hence cause a rapid cooling of the climate. My other thought is that if you had large nuclei, say 40, 50 miles in diameter, plunging into the sun at 1,000 miles per second, the plasma storm generated could be 
almost inconceivable in scale. When, it throw, when these plasma storms throw out these coronal mass ejections, this is unbelievable amounts of energy, right, flying out into space. Now, what happens is, is frequently this, the, the CMEs will fire into space, but Earth won't necessarily be within the, the target zone. Once yeah. in a while, the one is thrown in the direction of the Earth, right? So I'm totally now thinking that what we were seeing at the end of the last Ice Age, this whole sequence of events was a really more like a cosmic perfect storm, if you will, that involved multiple factors and would be oversimplified to try to explain it as a, as a, a single um you know, a single driving force, like a single impact. A lot of the critics of the Younger Dryas impact, they have attacked the single impact scenario, which to me is kind of a straw man, because it's clearly more complex than that. Yeah. The signature, the, the cosmic proxies are being found now all over the darn place, right? Magnetic grains, um, a, uh, impact spiral, iridium, platinum, um, all of these kinds of things that are normally associated with cosmic impacts are being found right at that 12,900-year horizon, which, incidentally, is also the major extinction horizon, the great Pleistocene megafauna, which, you know, Sam, up to this point, we humans have been blamed, ultimately, for the disappearance of the great megafauna. Interesting. Okay, what's your take on that? Well, my take on that is clearly you had that tremendous, what you were talking about, I mean, you, you would have had that tremendous habitat destruction and ecological disruption in the wake of these events that, yeah, it's in some ways surprising that as many species survived as did survive. It, around the world, think of this, think of every think of every megafaunal species on Earth today. Now, let me define megafaunal species. It basically means about 100 pounds in body weight or more. So presumably, you, Sam, are a megafauna. I'm Thank most definitely you. a megafauna. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. That's the well, nicest thing ever been said to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I meant it as a compliment. I presume you're more than 100 pounds. Yes, not, I am. I will, mm, so yeah. you're, you, you qualify a couple as of those. a megafauna. Not an extinct megafauna, but... Thank God. Thank God, right? So, okay, so you've got... Right now, it depends on how you divide up the species, and, you know, you might say, okay, you get two species of tiger here, but they're separate species. Ah, but no, you could argue, no, they're just tigers. They're, you know, it depends on how you define. You could be looking at 100 to 125 species of mega mammal on Earth today, right? Yeah. If you just start thinking about big animals, you know, bears and moose and lions and tigers and elephants and giraffes and water buffalo and... Just go down the list, right? Right. Um, so let's say 120 species of megafauna today, mega mammal in this case. Well, up until the end of the last ice age, it was about double that. You know, you had you had four species of, of elephants in North America. You know, you think elephants, you think Africa. You might think of India. You don't think of North America. But North America had four species of proboscideans, which means basically long-nosed, right? So they're all gone. They all got wiped out. They had huge camels, there were uh, giant cave bears and the giant short-faced bear that stood six feet on its, uh, at its shoulder. Um, you know, there were cryptodonts, uh, which were uh, basically armadillos that might weigh five or six hundred pounds. There was asteroides, which was uh, a beaver that weighed 
five and six hundred pounds, right? Gigantic beavers, right? The list was on and on and on and on. Well, they all disappeared during that interval of the younger dryas. So think of think of it this way, Stan. If you were going to try to affect an equivalent scale mass extinction today, where you're going to erase 100 to 120 species of, of, of big mammal from the Earth, well, you'd pretty much have to get rid of every every single animal on Earth over 100 pounds in body weight because you couldn't leave a single mating pair because even a single mating pair might imply that you could uh, replenish the, the species. So hold but on. See, so hold on. So yeah. uh, So when you hear about climate change and people, some people say it's man-made, some people say it's not, what do you? Well, I mean, what do you think it is? What what side oh, is a I better argument? I would say it's eighty-five to ninety percent natural, with a small component wow. caused caused by the increase in carbon dioxide. Maybe ten, maybe ten percent. But again, you have to understand carbon dioxide. You have to understand the carbon cycle. You have to understand how carbon. Uh, captures thermal energy and re-radiates it to the Earth. And most people who have opinions on this matter don't understand anything about any of that. They don't understand anything about paleoclimatology. They don't understand anything about the evidence for constantly changing climate on the Earth. Um, And so it's easy for them to get hoodwinked with a lot of propaganda. And that's what it is. It's propaganda. Wow. Wow, and wow, lizard people, global warming questions. We got all of it. Now, we have a little more time. Do you have a couple more minutes? I got a couple more, yeah. Okay. So let's get into these ancient civilizations. Now, do you believe that the the comets when they impacted and caused change, do you believe they wiped out all these amazing civilizations or one, or have we had many civilizations, and this happens a lot for some reason? I would think, based on what we now know, we know, see, here's the thing, Sam. It used to be models of history were integrated with models of global change, with models of evolution. You know, the old geological model, and I say old because it really, I'm not, I'm not talking more than 30 or 40 or 50 years ago, but what dominated most of the 20th century and late 19th century was a model of, of geological change that could be described as one drop of water, one grain of sand at a time, and over many, many millions of years, that slow incremental pace of change could add up to some really big change, and that's half true. It's absolutely half true. But what they missed, which pointed out, which curiously the original early geologists in the early 19th century didn't miss, was the evidence for catastrophes that's everywhere about us. But you see, when geology became established as an academic discipline, it was primarily catering to industry and government, right? Um, government wanted access to strategic minerals and oil. Industry also wanted access to those very same things. And so in that case, what they were looking for, if you're looking for an ore body, it's usually buried far down into the bedrock, right? If you're looking for uh, uh, oil or natural gas uh, reservoir, it's going to be buried down in the bedrock. You're not so much interested in what's on the surface, so for a century, basically, the stuff on the surface has been referred to as overburden. 
you got to get through that overburden to get down to the, the, the strategic metals, to the ores, to the to the hydrocarbons, right. right? But what that overburden is is, but what that is is that's the repository of evidence for global catastrophes. Ah. So until somebody really began to look at that, begin to look at the patterns of, of erosion and deposition and and then correlate that with mass extinction episodes, did it become apparent like in the into the late seventies and nineteen eighties and accelerating into the nineteen nineties that yes, there are times when the 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 placid pace of normal global change is suddenly interrupted and the pace of change accelerates by orders of magnitude. And you might get as much geological change in a matter of a few years or a few months or even weeks or days that it might otherwise take thousands of years to accomplish. See? Now, the other thing is is the realization that these mass extinction episodes correlate with the episodes of accelerated catastrophic change right down the line. And there's a whole other, you know, the onset of ice ages, determination of ice ages, geomagnetic field reversals, for example. Uh, Episodes of intense volcanism, all of these things are interrelated, and it seems if the driving mechanisms are from outside, as we were talking about. Changes in solar radiation, which causes, what you see, a major change in solar radiation can have enormous consequences in terms of the, uh, the, the lithosphere, because you have a slight global, uh, solar warming. What's going to happen when the when the lithosphere is absorbing that extra heat? It expands, right? What happens when you have a global cooling? The lithosphere goes through periods ah, of contraction. So right there, you've got a connection between what's going on out there in the big scale and what's happening down here in terms of volcanicity, seismicity. And see, this is where we're going. This is this is the cutting edge understanding of the world we live in, and. Here's the problem, then, is because right now there's a political agenda that wants to put 100% of the focus on the human effect yes. to the exclusion of all of these natural forces. Wow. And that, my friend, is a very dangerous uh, trend. Wow. Because- That's unbelievable. Yeah, man. I mean, it's, it's there's outside forces could definitely affect that. Right? I mean, if you get hit by a comet, bam. Welcome bam, to the Ice yeah. Age. Welcome to the and Ice Age. So just like now, the model, you know, the, the model of Darwinian evolution with slow incremental change, where from one generation to the next, you didn't see anything uh, extraordinary changes, right? There was no recognition or care to recognize mass extinction episodes. Those have always been resisted because they... The Darwinians wanted to imagine that evolutionary was this, evolution was this very orderly sequence, right? That it, it happened very slowly. So the models of Darwinian evolution totally meshed with, the, with geological gradualism. See, the two sort of mutually reinforced each other. The problem is, now we get to the 1970s and 1980s, and it's becoming more and more apparent that, no, evolution has not been an orderly phenomenon. But ah. it's, in fact interrupted periodically by these massive, catastrophic massive episodes, right? That's insane. Yeah. It is, man. But it's the fact. And anybody who wants to challenge me on this, hey, do your homework, man. I say (laughs) do your homework. Do the research. You know, 
delve into the scientific literature, go out in the field, talk to professionals like I've been doing for almost a half a century. Don't come to me because you saw some internet show for 15 minutes and you're going to challenge me on something that I've been studying for 40 I'm not going to do that, okay? dude. You know? I'm not going to do that. It all makes sense to me for sure. That's so interesting. So, I mean, man. So there's nothing we I'll can do about it? One last thing and then I'll turn it over to you. Okay, uh, I'm cool with mass that. Ex- mass extinctions in the, in, the, in the sequence of evolutionary life. We're now beginning to understand that we can take this new model of global change, which has seen the sudden disappearance, wholesale, mass deaths, mass extinctions of dominant numbers of species, followed by a hiatus, and then the sudden reemergence of new species from who knows where, right? So we now have this punctuated model of evolutionary change that has completely replaced the old model. Right, but what's happening now, Sam, is you can begin to trans like, transpose that same model onto historical and cultural change because we now know that civilizations become extinct, just like species become extinct, and the evidence suggests that civilizations become extinct when when the climate goes through these catastrophic shifts, when the environment goes through these catastrophic shifts, and those particular cultures or those particular civilizations are not flexible enough, not adaptable enough, and they succumb to the rapidly changing circumstances. Yeah, right? But you know who told us all about global warming was Al, Al Gore. And uh, I remember when Al Gore got on the, uh, the television with Ralph, not Ralph Nader, who was the guy from Texas that ran for president, Aaron? Perot, yeah. Got in there and told us NAFTA was going to be great for us. And it was gonna, and he just completely lied to us because later on we learned that it doesn't work. So this is he came out and told us all global warming was going to be the biggest threat. I, it's so interesting, dude. I, what? The United Nations established the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, to study climate change basically they were their mandate right in their charter is to study the human causes and ignore the natural causes so right from the very outset in the early 90s that was the mandate go out there and make the case that humans are causing climate change and ignore any evidence that the that nature is causing climate change never mind that nature has been driving climate change on all scales that we can measure for thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions wow. of years. And it ain't gonna stop, bro. It ain't gonna stop if, just because we quit driving SUVs. Wow. <laughs> wow. This is, you just blew my mind, man. So no need for a Tesla? Yeah, dude, go get a monster truck. Fuck Drive it. that around. <laughs> <laughs> Get one, dude. Get a grave digger. Just drive. That's your everyday car. I love this freedom. So, I mean, man, there's so much I want to ask you about. Wow. That was insane. I love it. Um, hey, but uh, an ice age is better than like like global warming, like right? Or which one you think is better? I think an ice oh, age would all be... All you got to do is look, dude. look at, at history. During times of global tooling, you have agricultural collapses because you have crop dying in the field. All we need to do, if we want a model of what global cooling is like, go back to the year 1816, the year without a summer, the year after Mount Tambora down in the Sunda Arc in Indonesia erupted big time. Biggest interrupt, biggest uh, volcanic eruption on Earth probably within the last thousand years. The following summer, 
there was no summer in the Northern Hemisphere to speak of. You had people shivering in snow in North, in for example, up in 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 New England because it was snowing on July Fourth, right? The whole summer they call it the year without a summer, right? And what happened is that. You had multiple agricultural collapses. And in fact, some uh, scholars that have been looking at this period call it the last great subsistence crisis of the Western world. And basically, you had hundreds of thousands of people dying, because, if not directly from starvation, they then died from the diseases that came in the wake of, of people not having enough to eat because they became malnourished. Go back to the medieval warming period, which was the high Gothic period, when these magnificent oh cathedrals God. were being built. Why were they able to build those cathedrals? They were able to build them because the warm temperatures, the warm, the global warming, caused a, a month-long increase in the in the growing season. Uh, it caused more rainfall, which caused bumper harvests and crops. And so, with the end of the Dark Ages cooling, where global uh, populations collapsed between roughly 500 A.D. and 900 A.D. After a century and a half of global warming, you, European society had prospered so much that they were now able to amass the huge numbers of craftsmen, the, uh, the armies of, of stonemasons and quarrymen and carpenters and glaciers and astronomers and engineers and geologists and on and on and on, and create hundreds of these magnificent cathedrals, right? And all of those people working on those were able to be fed and housed and clothed, right? Then what happens? Early 1300s, global cooling comes, right? Agricultural collapses, right? People get hungry, people get weak, they start starving to death. Opportunistic diseases take over, so famine is followed by pestilence. Within 30 years of the global pooling that came in the early 1300s, you had the bubonic plague that wiped out a third of the population of Europe. Oh my no, God. my friend, global warming is much better than global cooling, and the historical record bears this out over and over and over again. Wow. Mm. Even wow. better reason to buy a truck. Yeah, <laughs> keep it getting warmer. <laughs> keep it rocking, dude. Turn your heater on in the summer. The bet, the hotter well, it is. The- <laughs> that's not an excuse to be profligate with dude, our consumption of energy. Business uh, is better. Know. Working is better. Women are walking around with less clothes on. It's a just as well, it's hotter. It's better. There we go. This cool. is your, probably your strongest argument in favor of global warming. You're welcome, Your Honor. Um, so. <laughs> Tell me what your theory is on the whole... I know you were going to mention earlier, and I had to ask a question. What is your theory on the uh, Holy Grail? Okay, I'll just put it this way. Without getting into too much explanation about it, I'll just say that I think it's, uh, uh, it's a symbolical way of preserving knowledge about a lost technology of planetary and individual regeneration. Wow. Wow. You said he's going to keep it short. Planetary and individual regeneration. That's that's what it is. Well, so hold on. Is that so? The 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 Holy Grail is knowledge. The, oh yeah, absolutely. The whole the Holy Grail is a symbol for a lost technology. It's. And, of course, to get into that, we'd have to begin to discuss the intricacies of the of the grail romances, as they're called, which, interestingly, 
saw the light of day during the same 50 years that was the first 50 years of the Gothic movement. It was also the first 50 years that the Knights of the Temple uh, became a social uh, force for social change. It was also the rise of Catharism, uh, of, of um, the troubadours, the, uh, the first appearance of the Tarot. There was this really, really uh, fertile half-century period that saw the emergence of all of these interesting things. Um, and the rise like of Game the of last Thrones. wave of, of great architectural works around the planet was during the same 50-year period, right? The Grail stories come out of that period, but they're referring to a period that happened uh, roughly 800 years earlier, 700 years earlier, uh, during the 6th and 7th centuries. Because, you know, the Grail stories are revolve around the Arthurian legends, right? And Camelot and the quest for the Grail was um, the enterprise that was going to restore the wasteland because the land had fallen into decline for a number of reasons, right? Now, if you read the stories, and like the story of Arthur and his, his rise to becoming the king, pulling the sword out of the stone, all of this is symbolic, right? Now, he becomes king and he fights... His bastard son, Mordred, at the great battle of Camelon, and yeah. it's at this Camelon that he's killed, right? Generally, the dating of Camelon is given as 538 to 548 AD, right in there. Most historians that have looked at it put it right around that time, right? Right. Well, we now know from a number of proxy, proxy evidence that, that between 536 and 544 AD, something really extreme happened to the climate of the Earth. For example, Dendrochronologists who look at study tree growth, right, have looked at tree rings from that eight to ten year period and come to the realization that for about a decade, forest growth in the northern hemisphere came to a screeching halt, right, because uh, climatological and environmental conditions had gotten so severe and so extreme that it was that it was stunting forest growth in the northern hemisphere. Uh, Historical records at the time describe how the sun was sometimes not seen for weeks or, or months at a time. And when it was seen, it was just a dim facsimile of itself, right? So the evidence suggests what? that it wasn't just metaphorical dark age, it was literal dark age, right? And Why and would that happen? Why would that happen? Well, I think, again, I think we see, we, we see evidence that there was an oceanic impact off the coast of Norway. There's evidence of an oceanic impact off of New Zealand, and there's evidence of at least three gigantic volcanic eruptions that occurred. So you, again, had a, evidence of a perfect storm that put that ultimately ended with the, the, the planet going into three centuries of dark ages. In 542, after, after this complete failure of crops, agriculture dying in the fields, you know, because it was damp and cold. They couldn't harvest, so people got hungry, right? 542 A.D. comes the Justin, Justinian plague, and again, wipes out a third to half the population of Europe. And it took 200 years to recover from that. And that was the end, right there. Um, no, it took 300, 400 years to recover from that. Finally, around 900 A.D., when the planet began to warm again, the skies cleared, the planet began to warm, the sea ice began to retreat back north towards the Arctic Circle. It was then when the sea lanes opened up and the Vikings were able to sail out from Scandinavia and explore Greenland and establish um, 
outposts and colonies on the west coast of Greenland where it's now permafrost because it had gotten so warm that the permafrost had melted and they were able to carry on agriculture there for 400 years during the medieval warm period. But then that came to an end, like I said earlier, in the 1300s with the first phase of the Little Ice Age, which we only came out of in the mid-19th century. See, this you could explain the entire warming of the last century as the post-Little Ice Age warming. This is but amazing. Course, yeah. It's like but, uh, what, um, what was this? Uh, it's like Mark Maron says, Mother Nature is the number one terrorist. They, she was just wiping people out left and right. <laughs> right? You said that? No, no, he said God was. So uh, Mother Nature, Mother Nature. Uh, yes. Just yeah, I think you could put it Jacked everybody, I, 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 huh? I would say the 150 to 200,000 years or more that we humans have been on this planet, our primary um, objective on a day-to-day basis is surviving the kinds of things that nature has been throwing at us. Nature has been trying to exterminate the human race for a couple of hundred thousand years, and it's only due to our intelligence and our resiliency and our adaptability that we have been able to survive as long as we have. See. And not go the way of the woolly mammoths. Oh my! And the sacred cat. It's insane. But but here's the thing, Sam. There are factions that want to basically shut down the spirit of innovation and entrepreneurship and invention, and basically make us all wards of the state. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, with you on that. So, I'm not so sure that that's going to be the path to our own salvation. So no. So if I put you in charge right now, we're going to end on this. If I put you in charge. Of of the world, what would Randall Carlson do to save us? Well, first thing I would do is I would form a series of of international geopolitical alliances with the main industrial nations of the earth to begin the uh, the economic development and colonization of space. Uh, we would build a we would build a colony and outpost on the moon whose base would from whose base we would begin to colonize the entire solar system, because that, I think, is what we humans, why we evolved within the order of terrestrial natures, because life on Earth want, wants to become cosmic. It's, it's predestined to become cosmic. It's genetically programmed to become cosmic. And as long as life is confined to the surface of a planet, it's going to be vulnerable to the kinds of catastrophes that have been inflicted upon this planet over and over and over again. So first thing I would do is I would go sit down with the Russians. I would sit down with the Chinese. I would sit down with whoever, and I would say, here's the plan, guys, and it's going to require all of us pulling together, and here's what we're going to do. We are going to become a cosmic civilization in the next two generations. And we're going to put ourselves in a position where we can become invulnerable and like the knights of old, protecting the fair maiden against the the um, the, the vicious dragon that was trying to consume her in all of the, the ancient tales, whether it's, yes. um, you know, St. George or, 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 or St. Michael or whoever. We are going to become the guardians of this planet. That's our role. We are going to become the guardians of this planet, and we're going to begin to work on offloading our industrial base into high orbit, because at that point, it's no longer going to have uh, the kinds of ecological consequences that it is now having. Because once we understand that every single resource that we're drawing from Earth can be extracted from the cosmic domain, hey, and it's all out there. See, if we had kept up the momentum of the of the Apollo program... Wow. From, can you wow. imagine where we would be now? That's so interesting. Yeah. 
then you wouldn't have to be drilling here anymore. Could you? Get, you get, we got. No, more. we wouldn't. I mean, all the hydrocarbons are available from wow. asteroids. The wow. precious metals, the ores, water, right? You hey, you want to want solar energy to be a viable energy source? Get outside Earth's atmosphere. And if you were to set up a solar collector in the middle of Death Valley in the middle of the summer on a clear day at hot noon, you wouldn't even get one tenth the solar energy you could get from the same solar collector if it's five thousand miles out in space. Because there is no interruption, there's no atmosphere. So you want to power factories with solar energy? You put them in high orbit. Wow. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, closer to the sun. Send them to the moon. Yep. You want to go work? Go work on the moon. I'm well, you know, it's been said that, you know, if God didn't intend for man to colonize the solar system, he wouldn't have given us the moon. <laughs> yeah, the moon is weird, though, Matt. You look at the moon. Oh, it's totally this... weird. We th- could have a conversation about the weirdness of the moon. I would love to, man. I got to be honest with you, man. I could listen to you talk all day. That was uh Thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed it, man. Uh, you know, I was just barely hanging on to stuff. I had to, like, but man, it that's incredible, <laughs> man. I mean, like, dude, I would love to just listen to you. When is it? So it's sold out. Your event? I might go to it. When is this thing? It's right here. When, well, it's May seventeenth to the twenty seventh, and no, it's not sold out. But it's, I guess it's getting close. So uh, you might right. want to contact. Contact Aaron or Allen. I might hit them up. I might come. I think this would be a lot of fun, man. I appreciate you so much. Uh, go to, wh- where do you want me to send the listeners to? Do you got uh, your website? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Geocosmicrex.com and sacredgeometryinternational.com are the two sites where you can find a lot of stuff. There's some overlap between the two, but sort of the the focus is a little different of the two sites. I love um, it, man. I love it. Yeah, I love your website too. Uh, I hope you. I hope you'll come back, man. I had a really great time talking to you. I'd love to go even deeper. We got to do another episode to follow up and uh, get into it. so much. I didn't even talk about, man. Wow. Oh, a lot of stuff. Can you possibly send me a link to? Um, you know, you know. Do you have comments or anything like that? That comes of course, in? course, yeah. course, course. I'll send them to you. No problem. I appreciate yeah, you coming send on. Send me a link or text me a link or something that I can can I look at later in the week. When when will this go go up? This will go up uh, tonight, probably most likely. Oh, that soon. Okay. Turn yeah, and burn, yeah, brother. Probably... Turn and burn. Cool. Yeah. Well, Sam. Uh, yeah, really enjoyed having a conversation with you, man. You're... And I enjoy your enthusiasm. Yeah, <laughs> man, you blew my mind, dude. You blew my mind. I love that. I was a lot of fun to listen to. I'm all not. I'm all Anunnaki. I love that you said, oh, man, you said some really great stuff today. So thank you very much. I appreciate you having on and uh, having you on and coming on my show. And I hope uh, you'll do my show uh, again in the near future, man. I appreciate you. Oh, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm sure we can do it. No problem. Uh, I, I appreciate you. I'll talk to you guys soon. And uh, we'll see you soon. Take care, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, we'll see you soon. Bye. So long.